Hi, we are Caroline and Levi Holt, and we're part of the family here at Holt Farms. When I think of the people that I know that I watched wear Liberty overalls growing up, hard work, determination, perseverance, just a real appreciation for their craft and what they did and, and for things that, that lasted and for things that, that meant something to them. That's what I saw walking around in Liberty overalls. Shop LibertyBibs.com for your pair today. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today you'll meet Leanne Reeves. Leanne is a former city person who moved from Ontario to the most rural part of Nova Scotia to start homesteading on an old Christmas tree farm. Leanne, along with her husband, Chris, arrived in September of 2020, having bought their property sight unseen, only to find it abandoned and overgrown. With a lot of hard work, learning from mistakes and YouTube, they have made a solid start in turning this place into a working homestead. Leanne shares with us how they, along with their community, came together during Hurricane Fiona to support one another and to begin the process of rebuilding. Before we get to Leanne's interview, let's go over this week's listener review. This week's five-star rating and review comes from Enid Goodman via Apple Podcasts in Canada, and it is titled Life-Changing Podcast. Words cannot express the gratitude I feel for your podcast. I binged them through some of the dark days during the pandemic, and your messages brought my heart hope and some tears too. Farming isn't always easy. You and your guests have taught our family so much, but most importantly, to celebrate how far we've come. It hasn't always been easy raising kids with disabilities who are also visible minorities. One day, I hope to be a guest on your show and share our story, which is filled with songs about our life. I'm a musician, the fairies who brought me here, and our many adventures in farming and agritourism. Thank you so much for this kind rating and review. And this is your sign that it's time to come on and share your story here on the Rural Woman podcast. And this goes for all of you who are listening, who have a story to share, and who want to share your story on the podcast. As of this moment, during this recording, I am elbow deep in recording season here for the Rural Woman podcast. You may or may not know, I don't record each episode every single week. I record the majority of my podcast episodes during the winter season, which is not farming season for me. So as soon as I jump off the combine in the fall, I get right back into the recording studio and batch record all of my interviews with all of these amazing women in the matter and span of about three months. So it's very busy, but I love it so, so much. So if you're listening to this and you are interested in sharing your story on the Rural Woman podcast, there is a link in today's show notes, or you can head on over to wildrosefarmer.com and click on be a guest of the Rural Woman podcast. Even if you yourself 
don't want to be a guest and you have somebody that you think would make a great one, you can nominate them as well. So again, head to the link in today's show notes or head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Leanne. Hello, Leanne. Thank you so much for joining me today here on the Rural Woman Podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited, actually. I have been listening to this podcast for a while now. So to be here with you is 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 really exciting. That's so great. Well, I'm equally as excited to talk to you and to share your story here on the podcast. So thank you so much for, for being here with me today. So for the folks who are unfamiliar with you, Leanne, tell us about yourself, who you are, and how you got your start in agriculture. I am middle-aged. I'm 45, first of all. So, and, you know, normally age is not a super important thing, but when I tell you I've only been farming for two years, it, it was a bit of a change. So I come from um, Ontario. I'm living in Nova Scotia now. And in Ontario, I lived in a city my whole life. And I worked in the hospitality industry, so museums and hotels and things like that. Two years ago, you know, mid-pandemic, my husband and I kind of looked at each other and said, you know, this can't be it. We've got to have more of an adventure. And so we started looking for land at that point and found our property that we're on now in Nova Scotia and thought, why not? And so uh, two years ago, we made the big leap. And ever since we have been homesteading, I would call it homesteading. It's pretty small so far. Um, but yeah, it's it's been quite the adventure. So that's who I am. That's amazing. Well, that's this part of your story, right? This is this is this chapter. <laughs> so I like to ask this of folks who grew up in a city very similar to me of, can you share some of your first memories around where you thought your food came from? I had no idea. So not only did I grow up in a city, but I grew up poor. So, you know, everything was canned, you know, Chef Boyardee on the regular, you know, if it was vegetables, they were frozen or canned, you know, cream corn was a delicacy to us. (laughs) So... Yeah, I had no idea. I really didn't. And it was nothing that we ever talked about. It was, you know, maybe in public school on a field trip that we went to a farm for the first time. But I I really have no memory as a child knowing where food came from other than a can or the grocery store. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. That was my experience. And it's so interesting to me to hear these stories very similar to mine, you know, going on the field trip to a farm. And it was more or less a petting zoo. So you can see these animals and think they're so cute, but not really knowing what the end product of that animal was actually going to be. And it seems so silly now to think back then. But if you're not exposed to it, you don't know. No. In high school, I remember I went to a leadership conference that was held at the Ridgetown Agricultural College, which is a couple hours outside of London, where I'm from. And the leadership conference had nothing to do with agriculture, but we were just there. So they took us on tours and they were uh, part of the college is a dairy farm. And uh, they were uh, inseminating the cows that day. And I was like, well, why? I had no idea that, oh, yeah, they have to have babies to produce milk, (laughs) the milk that we drink every day. You know, like it was just and I think I was in, you know, grade 10 or 11, like very late to the realization that there's a whole industry behind what you're eating and drinking. Yeah, exactly. Well, and even still to this day, there's things that I learn about different sectors of agriculture that I just I guess I've never thought about or you don't think about. Of course, they have to have a baby to produce milk and continue to do that, to continue to make the delicious dairy products that we get in the grocery store, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. It was quite the light bulb moment. <laughs> right. I didn't say anything out loud. I was smart. <laughs> It's okay. This is why this is why we have to have these conversations to make the other people who don't say it out loud feel better about themselves. Right. That's right. <laughs> I was right there with half the kids. We just never said anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
So take us back to when you started to look for land. What on earth made you end up in Nova Scotia? Well, so for us, uh, price was a factor. So uh, we really wanted to be mortgage-free, okay, which is hard in this day and age. It was never going to happen in the city. And it was never going to happen in southwestern Ontario. Land's there. I mean, it's premium land. It's very good land. And it's expensive. So we knew we had to look kind of farther afield. So uh, originally, we started kind of going up north in Ontario, looking up there or in Western Quebec. And we thought to ourselves, well, you know, okay, if we're going to move to Northern Ontario, our family and friends are really only going to come see us once a year. So if that's already true, why don't we actually move somewhere kind of cool that we've, you know, never experienced before, or at least look. And literally we expanded the search on MLS And the property that we bought came up. It was like number three on the list. And we were just like, no, okay, Nova Scotia's cool. So, and neither one of us had ever been out here before. And so we just thought, all right, let's, you know, go for it. And of course it was, you know, kind of mid pandemic. And so moving around and visiting places was not easy. And especially in Nova Scotia, they took uh, COVID very, very seriously we actually ended up buying the property site unseen. So we uh, we owned it three weeks after that initial search. <laughs> so, uh, we were those people. The really lovely thing is there's a lot of people in this area that are those people, so we're not alone. But yeah, we were just like, oh, it used to be a Christmas tree farm? Amazing. It should be great for farming. And off we went, you know, totally naively. And yeah, that's how we ended up out here. Uh, it's amazing out here. We are literally across the road from the ocean and we have our own kind of waterfront. It's, it's small, but it's ours and our neighbors are amazing. It is quiet. There's no light pollution. There's no sound pollution. It is uh, a complete 180 from what we were living in. And uh, we just, we absolutely feel so lucky to be here. Yeah. What an amazing adventure. to going from an internet search to buying a property in a completely different province on basically what I would feel like it would be like the other side of the world. Like myself never being to Nova Scotia myself, I could not even imagine making that leap. So kudos to you because I know there are folks listening who that's the dream, right? Like that's the dream. Yeah, I had lived in a bunch of different places in the hospitality industry, you move around a lot. So, uh, you know, I had lived abroad. I had lived in a lot of Canadian provinces, uh, down in the States a couple of times. So I had moved around a lot. Um, my husband had not. He had never moved. And so, you know, to me, it really wasn't that big of a deal because I've always had the attitude of if I go somewhere and I give it a fair shake and I don't like it, I can just come home, you know, and <laughs> my husband was like, but, but we would own a property. <laughs> like you can't just, you can't just go home from there. And I was like, sure you can. It's just paperwork. Right. Um, yeah. So it wasn't that kind of intimidating to me, to him it was, but he has a lot of faith in a, my ability to acclimate and, and B, you know, he is just a guy who puts his head down and gets things done. So he knew no matter what we walked into, we would be okay. Right. Well, and knowing the area that you're in, you know, fingers crossed, there would be another couple like you who would be like, let's just sell everything and buy the property if it didn't work out, right? But <laughs> but luckily that, that hasn't happened yet. So <laughs> exactly. So when exactly did you move to your property in 2020? Sure. We left the day after Christmas in 2020. So we arrived here, I think it was the 28th of December. We had done a couple of trips out. So we had uh, officially seen the property. We had officially cut our way down the driveway because there was fallen trees and it was overgrown because no one had lived here in about 15 years. And so we knew what we were getting into in December. And uh, so, you know, we kind of looked like the Clampets, our car and our truck and our trailer were just stuffed full 
And uh, so we said goodbye to everybody the day after Christmas. Wow. So you mentioned a little bit about the state of your property. What were your first steps when you got there? Uh, (laughs) First steps, um, like I said, it was cutting our way down the driveway, to be honest. So we had a chainsaw with us. Did we put it somewhere convenient in the trailer? No, we didn't. So we had to unpack (laughs) part of the trailer just to find our chainsaw. Um, But getting to the actual uh, cabin on the property, we just kind of, we started to see what we had and what we didn't have. So, you know, the great thing about buying property in the area of Nova Scotia that we are is very rural and uh, it takes a while for properties to sell. So you're, you're able to get a fair price for what you're getting. And some would even say a low price for what you're getting. But you have to deal with what's there because they're selling it to you as is. So we knew coming in there was going to be issues. And so the first week that we were here, it was just, okay, we need a new septic system. We need to drill a well. We need to, you know, da-da-da-da-da, kind of fill out the list so that we can be comfortable and live here comfortably. And then we can think about, you know, the 99 other acres. So let's just concentrate here first, make sure we're comfortable, and then we can start spreading out from there. So right. that's that was the focus. Right. And so once you got acclimated and comfortable, what were some of the first things you did to start your homestead? Chickens. So chickens are the gateway, right? So we we had to pull down an old derelict bunkie and, uh, and we built a coop, a big coop. My husband, I think in his mind, really thought we were only going to have 25 chickens. I knew we were going to end up with more. So we we built the big poop coop and then brought the chickens in. So we bought pullets and, you know, the very first time I touched a chicken is when I was unloading the boxes in the coop. So we just kind of looked at each other and we're like, all right, here we go. You know, just stuck your hands in the box and hope for the best. So we started with chickens and immediately they are the gateway for a reason. Chickens are wonderful. And they made it very easy for us to feel somewhat confident in one thing. So, you know, it grew very fast. We no longer have 25, we have 80. And, um, and my confidence in being able to figure out uh, how to handle livestock and how to house them and whatnot started with those chickens. Um, you know, from first aid to, you know, how to get through a winter and things like that. The chickens have taught me all of that. And they, I'm so glad we started with them and not something larger. So (laughs) I really would recommend chickens for anyone thinking about starting out. So what do you have on on your homestead now? So we still have the chickens, obviously. Uh, We have uh, geese and we have ducks and we have pigs. So pigs were the new animal for this year. I'm only allowed to add one new species per year because <laughs> I would have all of the animals immediately and be totally overwhelmed if I, if my husband didn't kind of control me a little. <laughs> um, so pigs were the addition this year. We started with four piglets and uh, we've had them for about four months now. And uh, we'll be keeping one for breeding and the other three, um, they're going for processing in a couple of weeks. And we just brought home three additional piglets so that the one that's staying won't be on her own. And as much as I love the chickens, my husband fell for the pigs. So he just, I catch him sometimes just sitting in with them on the ground with a 300 pound pig on his lap and just like a big goofy grin on his face. And so, you know, he wasn't fully convinced about homesteading with the chickens, but the pigs have got him. Like, that's the hook for him. So That was his gateway into being all in. I loved what you said about building your confidence through the experience of your chickens, because I think that's super important. And I know it can be extremely overwhelming to bring anything onto your farm or your homestead or your ranch that it's like all Greek to me, right? When I brought my first goat, I was staring at them like constantly. I was convinced that they had bloat. I was convinced that they had all of these things, right? Because I had absolutely no idea. But 
the more and more that I was hands-on with them and built up my confidence, that's how I was like, okay, we can invite another goat or we could have a bottle calf or we could have all of these things, right? And I think, I know I'm the same way as you. I would have basically that petting zoo that I went in kindergarten as my farm if I possibly could, but knowing myself and how overwhelming it is when there is an animal that's sick or you don't know what's wrong with them or you're going to start breeding something, like it's very overwhelming for somebody, A, who didn't grow up this way and B, like I said, it's Greek to me, like learning these things. Um, So Thank you to our husbands who (laughs) bring us back down to earth (laughs) thinking that, uh, is this really a good idea to bring this on to the property at this time? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Without him, I would have everything and absolutely no infrastructure for it and just a wing and a prayer. Like, that would be it. The pigs would be living in the living room with you. and Yeah, it'd be be fine. (laughs) Exactly it. That's exactly it. Agriculture is changing fast. With tighter regulations, higher input costs, thinner margins, and constantly evolving technology and practices, it's not easy to keep up. There have been huge advantages in our ability to access knowledge, yet we're spending more time than ever hunting for the right information. Farmers spend on average 19% of their time seeking information. The knowledge farmers need to stay ahead of the curve is out there, but that doesn't mean it's fast or easy to find. All the knowledge and expertise in the world can't help farmers keep up with changes unless they can find it fast. And getting from question to answer quickly is make or break for the future of farming. The next great revolution in agriculture is finding the right information from the right expert at the right time. And AgVisor Pro is jumpstarting that revolution. AgVisor Pro has an independent network of some of the best professionals in agriculture. Their app taps into the network in a way that gets farmers the information, services, and expertise they need faster than ever before. Meet the future of farming head-on with AgVisor Pro. The AgVisor Pro app is available on iOS and Android. Head to the link in the show notes to download the AgVisor Pro app today. So describe to us, you know, you've you've talked about this was a Christmas tree farm. So describe to us the physical landscape of of your homestead because I can guarantee you it's a little bit different than what I'm looking at through my window here. <laughs> oh, I can guarantee it too. It's a little bit different from most of Nova Scotia, to be honest with you. So we're on the eastern shore of Nova Scotia, and the eastern shore is known for being rocky. So we are on bedrock. So if we're lucky, we have about four inches of soil cover, but in most places we don't. So evergreens or fir trees, they grow out rather than down. Um, So they're perfect for this kind of landscape. And we're really learning that now after Hurricane Fiona because so many trees have upended. We know that there's rock immediately underneath them. But there's no pasture here. There's no uh, grass. Like there's a little bit of grass in front of the house because we put it in. But if we want grazing animals, we have to A, clear the land and then B, somehow figure out how to grow uh, the grass and, and things like that. So Christmas tree farm was perfect for here. Those Christmas trees are now 40 feet tall. (laughs) So yeah. Um, And I'm not willing to scale up them just to top them. So, (laughs) so, you know, every time that we want to bring in an animal, we have to first decide, you know, is it an animal that will thrive in a forest location or do we have to this year clear the land and start creating soil there so that we can get ground cover for that animal. So it's almost a two-year planning phase if we want kind of, you know, grazing animals. I really want sheep, but it's going to take three years for me to get pasture enough for them. So that's what our farm looks like. It's beautiful and it's big, but it's very challenging. Very challenging. Right. Well, follow-up to that question is talk about the economic landscape in your area and uh, the challenges there. Sure. So 
our part of Nova Scotia has the highest unemployment rate, definitely in Nova Scotia, but probably in the country. It also has the highest rate of food insecurity, and it is not a wealthy wealthy area. It's just not. Um, and the locals will be the first to tell you that, you know, it never bothered them growing up poor because everybody was poor. So when moving here, you have to be realistic. First of all, you know, how are you going to feed yourselves before the farm takes off? And, you know, someone like me with a hospitality background in a rural area, I, I'm not sure exactly what I was thinking I was going to do. So we really had to be able to come into this knowing that my husband's salary was probably going to be the thing that we relied on. He's a truck driver. Truck drivers can work anywhere. So we had that in our back pocket. So we had that confidence knowing that no matter what, he can get a job. And, and he did quickly after moving here. For myself, you know, I can't just go and get a job at Tim Hortons. The closest Tim Hortons is an hour and 15 minutes away from here. So I had to create something for myself before the farm could ever, you know, support us financially in any way, shape or form. So with me, you know, I had to look at my skill base and say, okay, what can I do? And I can bake. So I started baking and selling it at farmer's markets and in the local community and things like that. This year, you know, the eggs that our chickens produce are, are supporting all of the animals now. They buy all the feed for the animals, which is amazing, but they're not supporting us. <laughs> you know? so, so you have to know, no matter what, that you have some kind of stable economical base. And that, unfortunately, right now is solely on my, shoulder, my husband's shoulders because you have to give yourself time to build up any kind of earnings from your farm. So for us, it's I created my own job and he has a steady job and that's how we afford everything else. And we're growing the farm to not only just feed us, but also um, support us in the coming years, hopefully. Right. Yeah. Well, and like you said, it is, it's a scary time, right? Like in the economy that we're in, and I don't care what province you're in, it's a scary time for a lot of us. But to know that you live in an area that it was similar to that before any of this even started prior to 2020. So talk to us more about the food insecurity in your area and how you are able to support making a change to that. Sure. So uh, food insecurity, in my experience, uh, the food in Nova Scotia is much more expensive than it is, say, in Ontario, where I'm from, southern Ontario. So we got here and there's a bit of sticker shock just in a grocery store. But the closest grocery store to us is also 35 minutes away. So for our community, we have a, a variety store. We're very lucky. We have a variety store that also stocks staple items. But it costs them so much to bring those items in because we're outside of a regular delivery route that a gallon of milk that is, you know, six fifty at Costco is now ten fifty in my community. And it's not that the variety store owners are gouging us. It's literally just there's so few of us and it takes so much to get it here that a gallon of milk costs ten fifty. And when you're a senior on a fixed income or a family of five where only one of you is employed, ten fifty for a gallon of milk, I mean, that's that's a lot. So our aim from day one has always been to feed our community somehow. And that doesn't mean that we're giving away food for free all the time because we can't live on that either. But our eggs are priced at the same price as the grocery store but we have a farm stand at the end of our driveway. So people in our community don't have to drive 35 minutes to go get eggs. The meat that we sell, so we did meat chickens this year and obviously we'll have pork in a few weeks time. We sold that at a very competitive price and in large quantities so that people can get kind of a discount and fill their freezers for the winter. This summer, I brought produce in from another farmer. Uh, being on bedrock, we don't, you know, have a market garden. Um, also, I'm not that great of a gardener. <laughs> so, you know, 
uh, I was running a, a farmer's market close to us. And so I would go and pick up produce from a, another farmer and put it in our farm stands so that our community could get fresh vegetables, again, without having to drive so far to get it. And so that has been our focus in just, if we need it ourselves, obviously the community does too. So we try to provide it for them right here in the community rather than having to drive so far to get it. Right. I was uh, checking your social media uh, before we started chatting and the love from your community is apparent and your farm stand, so sweet. And just to know that you don't have to go that extra 35 minutes and especially, you know, like you mentioned, a senior on a fixed income, you know, going those 35 minute trips every week to get fresh food to eat is not doable for a lot of people. So, you know, and bravo to you for bringing that produce to them and not putting it on yourself to try and grow that produce either. Because I think a lot of folks, especially in the homesteading community, really focus and emphasize on being self-sufficient. But why not be community sufficient instead and supporting another farmer, another market garden that's close enough to you, as well as supporting yourself and supporting your community. Like that, that to me is homesteading. And that to me is community sufficiency. Because when we think about it, however many years ago, when we weren't able to go to the grocery store, I say we, like it was me not being able to, it wasn't me. I, I've been able to go to the grocery store, but I think of like people like Baba, my husband's grandmother, she didn't get to go to the grocery store every week, but you know, if her neighbor had something and she had something like, why not swap or why not, you know, purchase one thing from one other person and be able to share that. So I just think it's really, it's really heartwarming to me to know that there's folks like you who are so passionate about their community and think of different ways to support them as well as supporting your family and being able to support your lifestyle. And for you, like I said, this chapter of your life, like you started doing this only two years ago. <laughs> I know it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's down to our community, though. I was nervous, or we were nervous, when we moved here. Uh, I, I don't know if you've heard of this, but in the Maritimes, they have a, a thing called come from a ways, right? So you're not from here. Um, and we have been warned, your community's not going to accept you. Um, you're a come from away or a CFA, what they call them. And yeah. and so I was like, but I'm I'm delightful. I don't know why. <laughs> right. Everyone just kind of laughed at me and, and said, well, okay, we'll see how it goes. But our community, it it literally was open arms. It was, you're willing to come here and invest in this area and build something here that doesn't just, you know, uh, benefit you and your husband, but also benefits the community. What can we do to help? Right. You know, so, and the barter system is alive and well here. You know, I <laughs> I had friends here and we wanted to do a boat tour and we figured out how many dozens of eggs it would cost for, you know, four of us to go on the boat tour. And that was, you know, the deal with the the operator, the tour operator. So everyone here is very much like, I have this and you have that and I need that and you need this. So let's figure out a fair way to exchange those two things. Yeah. And I've never experienced that before. You know, it's not that, you know, I've been unneighborly in the city, but um, everyone has the same access to everything in the city. So um, it, you don't go to your neighbors and say, hey, I had a plethora of garlic. Did you have a plethora of that? And, you know, we'll, we'll trade. And on the vein of getting vegetables from a farmer, I don't have time to do a market garden and I would drive myself insane. I don't like weeding. You know, I, I remember I went to um, talk to a local farmer here. She was teaching me about pigs and she was talking about how like weeding her field is her favorite thing. She just puts in her AirPods and listens to a podcast while she's doing it. And she's like, and I do it with a song in my heart. And I'm like, oh my God, that's torture to me, you know? Whereas I can clean out a coop with a song in my heart, listening to a podcast. And she's like, oh, I have no interest in that. So 
yeah, I think you really have to look at each other and say, you're really good at that. And I'm pretty good at this. So why don't you do that for me? And I'll do this for you kind of thing. And, and then that way, it's not so much pressure because I can't imagine, I follow some homesteaders that they do it all. And I'm like, I, I'm just not interested in doing that. First of all, I'm 45 and getting tired. That's how it happens. But also that's a lot of pressure. And you know, I have a little bit of anxiety, so it's just best if I don't put any more pressure on myself right. than I already have. Exactly. So. <laughs> well, this should be the gold standard, Leanne, of like, this is how we're supposed to be doing this. Like, stop putting all of this pressure on yourself. And like you said, it is a lot of pressure. And especially for the folks who are feeding communities or there's folks who rely on this person for a lot of what they eat. Like, that is a lot of pressure. Um And like you said, doing things that bring joy to your life or joy in your day, like to me, cleaning out a chicken coop doesn't sound like a really great time. Uh, But then again, I do it for the goats. So, but I like doing it for them. So I guess, you know, it's all, (laughs) it's all in what you make it, right? So I want to talk to you about Hurricane Fiona and what that did for your community. You know, when we think about differences of growing food and providing for communities and people do this all across the world, something that I don't think I'm ever going to have to worry about here in Alberta is a hurricane. Uh, Even though sometimes the wind seems like that, we don't really have to, we don't have to think about those things. So was this the first hurricane that you had ever experienced in your whole life? Yeah, it sure was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we got the, they called it the storm of a generation. And wow. it was our first, you know, where we're from in Ontario, we're in Tornado Alley. So we're used to, somewhat used to tornadoes. Uh, the thing about tornadoes is you don't get a lot of advance notice about it. So it's it's more of a, a quick reaction, whereas with hurricanes, we knew kind of six days out that it was coming. We didn't know exactly where it was going to make landfall. We were in the, I think they called it the cone of uncertainty, which I thought was a made up term, but it is an actual meteorological term. We were smack kind of in the middle of it, of where it might let uh, make landfall. So we had a good amount of time to start, you know, basically battening down the hatches. And we had neighbors reaching out saying, take this seriously. And do you have everything you need? Do you have a generator? Do you have water? Do you, you know, what is your plan? Um, Because they've lived through it their whole lives. Um, And they knew that this one was different. So we were fortunate that it actually made landfall about 60 kilometers away from us. So we weren't directly in the eye, but our part of the Eastern shore uh, was hit pretty hard. So we very luckily our our home wasn't damaged and none of our animals were hurt so that's the most important thing it happened overnight so the animals were naturally indoors anyway so that kind of made me feel better we built all of our um buildings for the animals so this was a good test um my husband's a very good builder we found out so but it was also in the middle of the night so you couldn't see what was happening you could hear the wind you could feel it literally moving the house and I could hear crashing of trees and things like that but you couldn't actually see and to me uh, I was very appreciative of not being able to see I think if I had to watch the destruction happen it it would have been much worse Uh, to my husband he would have rather to have been able to see but for us we have hundreds of trees down Uh, it's not just you know a few here a few there it's hundreds because again, like I said, with that very thin layer of soil, there's not much holding a tree in the ground. So some of them were very healthy trees that, you know, we really hope to to keep. Our driveway was completely covered. The morning after the hurricane, we, uh, you know, obviously you still have chores, right? You're still in the middle of a hurricane, but you still have to feed the animals and decide what's best for them, even though you don't know. And so we were outside and the fence to the chicken run was down. The electric fence to the pigs was down. The pigs are very good. They stay inside anyways. But, you know, we were like, okay, the first priority is getting those fences back up. And we were working on that. And uh, we heard a truck 
come up our driveway. And we're like, there's no way. There was at least 20 trees down and it was our neighbors. They cut their way in up the driveway because they didn't want us to feel stuck. And they wanted to make sure that we were okay. And, you know, our neighbors are in their mid sixties, you know, <laughs> so it's like, they're like, we just shoved it off to the side of the driveway. I hope you're okay with that. Like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it was quite emotional, you know, because they were really looking out for us. And so for us, really what Hurricane Fiona looked like was eight days without power, which never would happen in a city. That is just not a thing. It looks like what will take probably upwards of a year to clean up after, which again, doesn't happen in a city, right? You put your branches on your boulevard and it magically gets picked up by somebody. That's not what happens out here. So every bit of progress that we made over the last couple of years, it was gone. It, it, not entirely, but it felt like it was gone in the first few days. Uh, we had built a bunkie and it was ripped right off of its supports because three trees landed on it. You know, trees that we uh, we use for shade for our animals, we use for supports for the fencing, things like that. They're just gone. So our community was suffering. We don't have cell service out here and the phone lines were down and the power was gone. So we were effectively cut off. Now, we are lucky in that we have satellite internet, we have Starlink, and so when our generator was on, we had um, Wi-Fi, which means we had access to using our cell phones, but we had an 80-year-old neighbor who was entirely on her own, and no phone, no power, and so, you, you know, it's I don't, I don't know, I'm a little emotional about it, to be honest with you, because I've grown up in a city just knowing that there were services out there that would come to your rescue if you needed it. But we really found out in the hurricane that when you live rurally, you're on your own and you and your neighbors are it. So our community center opened as a comfort center and made meals for 10 days, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for anyone who didn't have power. We sourced generators for people who needed generators. Because we had access to Facebook, we had family members reaching out to us to go and check on their family members that they couldn't get in touch with, that kind of thing. So the storm was scary. The damage is a lot, but the community was amazing. And it really gave us a chance to reach out to our local politicians and say, this isn't good enough. You can't just leave us out here because there's not very many of us. You can't leave us out here to be this vulnerable. You know, and so it's it's really opened up a lot of conversations um, saying, you know, cell service, it has to be a right. Like, a, you know, you have to be able to access it if you can't guarantee me that telephone lines are going to be working all the time. You know, a neighbor of ours just got her telephone back literally last week, four weeks after the hurricane. So it's just things like that where every time we go through something like this, A, it tests us and what we have around us and whether we can handle something. But it also shows us how strong our community is and where our weak points are. And that's when you say, okay, well, now it's time to, to reach out to the powers that be and say, I'm sorry, you have to provide more. You know, we're out here doing the best that we can. We ask you to do the same thing. So that's kind of, uh, that was long-winded, but that's what I learned <laughs> Hurricane Fiona will be cleaning up for a long time, though, for sure. Your community just sounds like it is an absolute beautiful place. And this is obviously not their first rodeo, might have been your first rodeo, but it sounds like you, you hitched your saddle real good there and you you were able to jump in and obviously do your part and what you could, but obviously everybody else did too. And to me, that is absolutely heartwarming to know that that still happens places. And especially after the last two years of people hating on each other and all of the things, right? To know that everybody, no matter what, can still come together and still support one another. And to be said too, making sure that, you know, obviously you've lived through this, you've survived, you know, you are rebuilding, but you said the powers that be also need to know that, you know, the bare minimum isn't doing it and people need to have the access. 
right? And it's scary to know that you could live through something like this in this day and age and not have emergency services be able to come and help you. Um, so yeah, it, obviously these are bigger conversations that I, I'm happy to support in any way, but again, not being able to say that I've lived through a hurricane and, uh, had to batten down the hatches is it's so scary. So I'm so glad that everyone made it through. And I'm so glad to hear that your husband is a wonderful carpenter. Uh, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and two of us kind of looked at each other and we're like, well, we'll see how it goes. Right. And that's all you can do, right? Like that. And I think that's something that, you know, we ourselves as a human race have had to kind of live through ourselves. Like, I guess we'll see what happens because really, like you can only do so many things and then the rest is out of your hands. I remember yeah. a friend of mine, <laughs> she was texting kind of before the storm hit. She she lives a little bit away from us and and she said, you know, okay, well, I'll come tomorrow and help you catch the animals that get out. And I was like, the animals that get out? What are you talking about? <laughs> it had never even crossed my mind that there would be like chickens here and there. <laughs> you know? But luckily no one got out. But I was just like, oh my God, I don't think I'm thinking of everything that might happen right now. <laughs> but that might also be like a mechanism to protect yourself from not going absolutely insane, right? Like if you could think of absolutely everything that will go wrong, uh, how how do you rest? How do you sleep? How do you take care of your own self, right? So, (laughs) So now that the hurricane has passed and things have kind of started getting back more and more normal, is there anything that your community needs right now that perhaps somebody listening can reach out and help with? Really, the only thing we need is help with fallen trees. So a lot of the property out here is not necessarily occupied. So, you know, it's owned, but no one lives on it. And so the worry going forward, even though Nova Scotia has not been somewhere at risk of wildfires, but with climate change and things like that, it will become, you know, more and more common out here. And with all of the trees down, it provides literal fuel for the fire. So if anyone has time and and they want to come out and help clear trees, I know everyone would say yes to the help just to to get it off the forest floor, basically. Um, So, yeah, I mean, and that doesn't mean that you have to wield a chainsaw or, you know, be an expert. Moving brush is you know, a big job. And so if anybody wants to spend a vacation out here, I have a bunkie, it's crooked right now, but you know, they can come out and help. <laughs> but that's what the province needs. Like we need help cleaning up. That's really yeah. it. Yeah. Well, make sure you put the chainsaw at the front or the back of your trailer, depending on where, where you're getting it from. But uh... <laughs> Leanne, what are your plans for the future and your homestead? What are you hoping to bring in the future? Our real hope is we want to bring more food and a sense of a place here in this community. So our plans for the future, and this is kind of five or six years off, but um, is a general store where we can provide staples and, you know, home cooked meals and things like that, but also a place for our community to gather and have a cup of coffee and a, and a conversation and, and things like that. So you know, while also having our eggs and our meat and, and all of that kind of stuff. So that's, that's really where we're going with it. Um, the, and of course, you know, sheep at some point. <laughs> sheep, come on. Yeah, I know the pigs are going to be expanded next year because my husband is just head over heels for them. But someday I'm going to have sheep out here. It's going to happen. I know it's going to happen for you. And through the power of community, it's going to happen. <laughs> Leanne, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It has been, you are a delight. You know, you said it in the, today, you are a delight. So if anybody's listening who had any doubts, Leanne, you are quite a delight. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. My last question for you, Leanne, is what is the most rewarding part about being a rural woman for you? Honestly, it's providing food that I know uh, was raised with kindness that was very happy and loved. That's the biggest thing for me. 
when I put a dozen eggs out at the farm stand, you know, the sign says that they're from the happiest chickens. And that is very rewarding to me because I know that my food is coming from um, an ethical place. So that's the most important part to me. Beautiful. Those happy chickens. (laughs) I love them. (laughs) (laughs) For the folks listening who would like to connect with you online, Leanne, where can they find you? Uh, They can find us Instagram, uh, TikTok, and Facebook, all at Goldhawk Farm. Perfect. And I will link all of those in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. really has. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast, a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim and Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story. There's a better way to answer on-farm questions with AgVisor Pro. Farmers are able to get answers now, not later, from an independent network of some of the best professionals in agriculture. Spend less time searching for those answers. Ask your question on the AgVisor Pro app and move faster and more confidently in your decision-making. Available on iOS and Android, head to the link in the show notes to download the AgVisor Pro app today.